This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Siegel of Maynard, Massachusetts. Captain Blood by Raphael Sabatini. Chapter 28. The Honor of Monsieur de Rivarol. During the capitulations, and for some time after, Captain Blood and the greater portion of his buccaneers had been at their posts on the heights of Nuestra Señora de la Pupa, utterly in ignorance of what was taking place. Blood, although the man chiefly, if not solely, responsible for the swift reduction of the city, which was proving a veritable treasure-house, was not even shown the consideration of being called to the council of officers, which with Monsieur de Rivarol determined the terms of the capitulation. This was a slight that at another time Captain Blood would not have borne for a moment. But at present, in his odd frame of mind, and its divorcement from piracy, he was content to smile his utter contempt of the French general. Not so, however, of his captains, and still less his men. Resentment smouldered among them for a while, to flame out violently at the end of that week in Cartagena. It was only by undertaking to voice their grievance to the baron that their captain was able for the moment to pacify them. That done, he went at once in quest of Monsieur de Rivarol. He found him in the offices which the baron had set up in the town, with a staff of clerks to register the treasure brought in, and to cast up the surrendered account books, with a view to ascertaining precisely what were the sums yet to be delivered up. The baron sat there scrutinizing ledgers like a city merchant, and checking figures to make sure that all was correct to the last peso. A choice occupation this for the general of the king's armies by sea and land. He looked up irritated by the interruption which Captain Blood's advent occasioned. Monsieur le Baron, the latter greeted him, I must speak frankly, and you must suffer it. My men are on the point of mutiny. Monsieur de Rivarol considered him with a faint lift of the eyebrows. Captain Blood, I too will speak frankly, and you too must suffer it. If there is a mutiny, you and your captain shall be held personally responsible. The mistake you make is in assuming with me the tone of an ally, whereas I have given you clearly to understand from the first that you are simply in the position of having accepted service under me. Your proper apprehension of that fact will save the waste of a deal of words. Blood contained himself with difficulty. One of these fine days he felt, for the sake of humanity, he must slit the comb of this supercilious, arrogant cockerel. You may define our positions as you please, said he. But I'll remind you that the nature of a thing is not changed by the name you give it. I am concerned with facts, chiefly with the fact that we entered into definite articles with you. Those articles provided for a certain distribution of the spoils. My men demand it. They are not satisfied. Of what are they not satisfied? demanded the baron. Of your honesty, Monsieur de Rivarol. A blow in the face could scarcely have taken the Frenchman more aback. He stiffened and drew himself up, his eyes blazing, his face of a deathly pallor. The clerks at the tables laid down their pens, and awaited the explosion in a sort of terror. For a moment there was silence. Then the great gentleman delivered himself in a voice of concentrated anger. "'Do you really dare so much? You and the dirty thieves that follow you? God's blood! You shall answer to me for that word, though it entail yet worse dishonor to meet you. For—' "'I will remind you,' said Blood, "'that I am speaking not for myself, but for my men. It is they who are not satisfied.' They who threaten that unless satisfaction is afforded them, and promptly, they will take it. Take it, said Rivarol, trembling in rage. Let them attempt it, and— Now don't be rash. My men are within their rights, as you are aware. They demand to know when this sharing of the spoil is to take place, and when they are to receive the fifth for which their articles provide. God give me patience. 
How can we share the spoil before it has been completely gathered? My men have reason to believe that it is gathered, and anyway, they view with mistrust that it should all be housed aboard your ships and remain in your possession. They say that hereafter there will be no ascertaining what the spoil really amounts to. But, name of heaven, I have kept books. They are there for all to see. They do not wish to see account books. Few of them can read. They want to view the treasure itself. They know, you compel me to be blunt, that the accounts have been falsified. Your books show the spoil of Cartagena to amount to some ten millions livres. The men know, and they are very skilled in these computations, that it exceeds the enormous total of forty millions. They insist that the treasure itself be produced and weighed in their presence, as is the custom among the brethren of the coast. I know nothing of filibuster customs, the gentleman was disdainful, but you are learning quickly. What do you mean, you rogue? I am a leader of armies, not of plundering thieves. Oh, but of course, Blood's irony laughed in his eyes. Yet whatever you may be, I warn you that unless you yield to a demand that I consider just and therefore uphold, you may look for trouble, and it would not surprise me if you never leave Cartagena at all, nor convey a single piece of gold home to France. Ah, pardieu! Am I to understand that you are threatening me? Come, come, Monsieur Le Baron. I warn you of the trouble that a little prudence may avert. You do not know on what a volcano you are sitting. You do not know the ways of buccaneers. If you persist, Cartagena will be drenched in blood, and whatever the outcome, the King of France will not have been well served. That shifted the basis of the argument to less hostile ground. A while yet it continued, to be concluded at last by an ungracious undertaking from Monsieur de Riverol to submit to the demands of the buccaneers. He gave it with an extreme ill-grace, and only because blood made him realize at last that to withhold it longer would be dangerous. In an engagement he might conceivably defeat blood's followers, but conceivably he might not, and even if he succeeded, the effort would be so costly to him and men that he might not thereafter find himself in sufficient strength to maintain his hold of what he had seized. The end of it all was that he gave a promise at once to make the necessary preparations, and if Captain Blood and his officers would wait upon him on board the Victorious tomorrow morning, the treasure would be produced, weighed in their presence, and their fifth share surrendered there and then into their own keeping. Among the buccaneers that night there was a hilarity over the sudden abatement of Monsieur de Rivero's monstrous pride, but when the next dawn broke over Cartagena, they had the explanation of it. The only ships to be seen in the harbor were the Arabella, and the Elizabeth riding at anchor, and the Atropos and the Lachalis careened on the beach for repair of the damage sustained in the bombardment. The French ships were gone. They had been quietly and secretly warped out of the harbor under the cover of night, and three sails, faint and small, on the horizon to the westward was all that remained to be seen of them. The absconding Monsieur de Riverol had gone off with the treasure, taking with him the troops and mariners he had brought from France. He had left behind him at Cartagena not only the empty-handed buccaneers, whom he had swindled, but also Monsieur de Cousy, and the volunteers and negroes from Hispaniola, whom he had swindled no less. The two parties were fused into one by their common fury, and before the exhibition of it the inhabitants of that ill-fated town were stricken with deeper terror than they had yet known since the coming of this expedition. Captain Blood alone kept his head, setting a curb upon his deep chagrin. He had promised himself that before parting from Monsieur de Riverol, he would present a reckoning for all the petty affronts and insults to which that unspeakable fellow, now proved a scoundrel, had subjected him. "'We must follow,' he declared. "'Follow and punish!' At first that was the general cry. 
Then came the consideration that only two of the buccaneer ships were seaworthy, and these could not accommodate the whole force, particularly being at the moment indifferently victualled for a long voyage. The crews of the Lachesis and Atropos, and with them their captains, Wolverstone and Iberville, renounced the intention. After all, there would be a deal of treasure still hidden in Cartagena. They would remain behind to extort it whilst fitting their ships for sea. Let Blood and Hagthorpe, and those who sailed with them, do as they pleased. Then only did Blood realize the rashness of his proposal, and in attempting to draw back he almost precipitated a battle between the two parties into which that same proposal had now divided the buccaneers. And meantime those French sails on the horizon were growing less and less. Blood was reduced to despair. If he went off now, heaven knew what would happen to the town, the temper of those whom he was leaving being what it was. Yet if he remained, it would simply mean that his own and Hagthorpe's crews would join in this Saturnalia and increase the hideousness of events now inevitable. Unable to reach a decision, his own men and Hagthorpe's took the matter off his hands, eager to give chase to Rivarot. Not only was a dastardly cheat to be punished, but an enormous treasure to be won by treating as an enemy this French commander who, himself, had so villainously broke the alliance. When Blood, torn as he was between conflicting considerations, still hesitated, they bore him almost by main force aboard the Arabella. Within an hour the water casks at least replenished and stowed aboard, the Arabella and the Elizabeth put to sea upon that angry chase. "'When we were well at sea, and the Arabella's course was laid,' writes Pitt in his log, "'I went to seek the captain, knowing him to be in great trouble of mind over these events. I found him sitting alone in his cabin, his head in his hands, torment in the eyes that stared straight before him, seeing nothing. "'What now, Peter?' cried the young Somerset mariner. "'Lord, man, what is there here to fret you? Surely tisn't the thought of Rivarol?' "'No,' said Blood thickly, and for once he was communicative. It may well be that he must vent the thing that oppressed him, or be driven mad by it. And Pitt, after all, was his friend and loved him, and so a proper man for confidences. "'But if she knew! If she knew! Oh, God!' I had thought to have done with piracy, thought to have done with it forever. Yet here I have been committed by this scoundrel to the worst piracy that ever I was guilty of. Think of Cartagena. Think of the hell those devils will be making of it now, and I must have that on my soul. Nay, Peter, tisn't on your soul, but on Rivarol's. It is that dirty thief who has brought all this about. What could you have done to prevent it? I would have stayed if it could have availed. It could not, and you know it. So why repine? There is more than that to it, groaned Blood. What now? What remains? Loyal service with the English has made impossible for me. Loyal service with France has led to this, and that is equally impossible hereafter. What, to live clean, I believe the only thing is to go and offer my sword to the King of Spain. But something remained, the last thing that he could have expected, something towards which they were rapidly sailing over the tropical sunlit sea. All this against which he now invades so bitterly was but a necessary stage in the shaping of his odd destiny. Setting a course for Hispaniola, since they judged that thither must Riverol go to refit before attempting to cross to France, the Arabella and the Elizabeth ploughed briskly northward with a moderately favourable wind for two days and nights without ever catching a glimpse of their quarry. The third dawn brought with it a haze which circumscribed their range of vision to something between two and three miles, and deepened their growing vexation and their apprehension that Monsieur de Rivarol might escape them altogether. Their position then, according to Pitt's log, was approximately 75 degrees 30 minutes west longitude by 17 degrees 45 minutes north latitude, so that they had Jamaica on their larboard beam some 30 miles to westward, 
and indeed, away to their northwest, faintly visible as a bank of clouds, appeared the great ridge of the Blue Mountains, whose peaks were thrust into the clear upper air above the low-lying haze. The wind to which they were sailing very close was westerly, and it bore to their ears a booming sound which in less experienced ears might have passed for the breaking of surf upon a lee shore. "'Guns!' said Pitt, who stood with blood upon the quarter-deck. Blood nodded, listening. Ten miles away, perhaps fifteen. Somewhere off Port Royal, I should judge, Pitt added. Then he looked at his captain. Does it concern us? he asked. Guns off Port Royal. That should argue Colonel Bishop at work. And against whom should he be in action but against friends of ours? I think it may concern us. Anyway, we'll stand in to investigate. Bid them put the helm over. Close hauled, they tacked the weather, guided by the sound of combat, which grew in volume and definition as they approached it thus for an hour, perhaps. Then, as telescope to his eye, blood raked the haze, expecting at any moment to behold the battling ships, the guns abruptly ceased. They held to their course, nevertheless, with all hands on deck, eagerly, anxiously scanning the sea ahead. And presently an object loomed into view, which soon defined itself for a great ship on fire. As the Arabella, with the Elizabeth following closely, raced nearer on their northwesterly track, the outlines of the blazing vessel grew clearer. Presently her mast stood out sharp and black above the smoke and flames, and through his telescope blood made out plainly the pennon of St. George fluttering from her maintop. "'An English ship!' he cried. He scanned the seas for the conqueror in the battle of which this grim evidence was added to that of the sounds they had heard, and when at last, as they drew closer to the doomed vessel, they made out the shadowy outlines of three tall ships, some three or four miles away, standing in toward Port Royal, the first and natural assumption was that these ships must belong to the Jamaica fleet, and that the burning vessel was a defeated buccaneer, and because of this they sped on to pick up the three boats that were standing away from the blazing hulk. But Pitt, who through the telescope was examining the receding squadron, observed things apparent only to the eye of the trained mariner, and made the incredible announcement that the largest of these three vessels was Riverol's Victorieuse. They took in sail and hove to as they came up with the drifting boats, laden to capacity with survivors. And there were others adrift on some of the spars and wreckage with which the sea was strewn, who must be rescued. End of chapter 28